Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Президент Российской Федерации Владимир Владимирович Путин. Спасибо. Прошу вас. You are listening to Russia's annual Presidential State of the Nation Address of December 2014. Inevitably, the first subject addressed by the Russian President Vladimir Putin was his country's annexation of the Crimean Peninsula, which had taken place earlier that year. About this, he says the following, quote, of course, today we must talk about the historical events that have taken place this year. As you know, in March this year was held a referendum in Crimea in which the inhabitants of the peninsula clearly expressed their desire to join Russia. This was followed by the decision of the Crimean Parliament, and I stress absolutely legitimately, do not forget this, for independence. And finally, a historic reunification of Crimea and Sevastopol to Russia. For our country, this event has a special significance, because in Crimea live our people, the Russians, and the territory itself is strategically important, because it is precisely here that is the source of the diverse yet monolithic Russian nation and of the centralised Russian state. It was here, in the Crimea, in the ancient town of Kernazazus, or as it was called by Russian chroniclers, Kherson, where Prince Vladimir was baptised, and then all of Rus. By the bringing together of people under a common language and material culture, and by economic development, the Christian princes were a powerful spiritual unifying force that allowed the formation of a single Russian nation, that is, a unified state, comprising most of the different tribes of the vast East Slavic world. And it is on such a spiritual foundation, from the beginning and for always, that the unification of the people is founded. And this gives us every justification to say that for Russia, the Crimea, ancient Kherson, that is Khersonasus, or Sevastopol, is a truly great civilization and of sacred significance. Just as the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, for those who profess Islam or Judaism, that is how we are going to treat this now and forever. The city of Kersonesus, often abbreviated to Kerzon, was an ancient Greek settlement on the Crimean coast. Founded in the 6th century BC on a peninsula to the west of the modern city of Sevastopol, 
Kherson has been excavated by archaeologists for nearly 200 years and was made a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 2013. It holds significance for Orthodox believers as the site of the baptism in 988 of Vladimir the Great, the prince credited with converting Kiev and Rus, that is the precursor of modern Russia, Ukraine and Belarus, to Christianity. The importance of the site today is emphasised by an event which occurred in August 2015. President Putin decided to intervene after it became widely feared that the local governor's plans to develop tourist infrastructure in the area would destroy many of the ancient ruins. Putin decided on a decree making the ruins one of, quote, the most valuable cultural heritage sites of the peoples of the Russian Federation, end quote and placing the reserve under federal protection. Given the symbolic significance of the site and its association with the founding of Russian Orthodoxy, the president was keen to reassure critics that the archaeological site would not be spoilt by inappropriate development. The early history of Kherson, Crimea, the Black Sea and Russia is the subject of the following set of episodes. Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles, the siege of Kherson of the year 988, part one of five. Any traditional national history of Russia begins with the founding of a dynasty, which was named after its founder, Rurik. In short, Rurik was the leader of a group of Vikings who, having arrived from Scandinavia, established a power base among the Slavs of Eastern Europe. Later members of his dynasty, first based in the city of Kiev, today the capital of Ukraine, became the leading political figures of the region for the next several centuries. Before going any further with the history of the region, that is of Russia, Ukraine and Belarus, I think it would be useful to spend a little time looking at some different historical viewpoints. Paul Robert Magoski, in his book A History of Ukraine, looks specifically into the different perspectives of the history of Ukraine. Today an independent nation, but for long periods of time, under the rule of foreign powers, especially Poland and Russia. Such perspectives have political implications today. For example, there are those who question the logic in a separate modern Ukrainian state, arguing it lacks the historical roots to qualify for full nationhood. Firstly, I will look at the Russian historical viewpoint. By the 18th and 19th centuries, when the first scholarly histories of Eastern Europe began to be written, the only East Slavic state in existence was the Russian Empire. The ruling dynasty at the time, the Romanovs, actively encouraged the publication of works that justified their existence and their absolute rule. Magoski writes, quote, An indispensable part of glorifying any state or monarchy is proving its proper genealogical lineage and descent. This is what, in our times, Bernard Lewis has aptly called the foundation myth, the need for countries and peoples and powers to improve or conceal their undistinguished beginnings and attach themselves to something older and greater. End quote. 
McGusky continues that in the 14th century, when the Muscovite state was in its earliest stage of development, monastic scribes recopied earlier historical chronicles, which were then, quote, improved, end quote, and expanded in order to show the descent of their own secular rulers, the Muscovite princes from the rulers of Kiev and Rus, who belonged to a dynasty that could be traced back to the 9th century semi-legendary ruler Rurik. Later, the early 19th century Russian historian Nikolai Karamzin insisted in the unity of all East Slavs, whom he referred to as the Russian people and whose first political centre was Kiev. Through centuries of turbulence after the Mongols had devastated the region and the political and religious centre of the Russian people shifted first to Moscow and then to St. Petersburg, it was the duty of the Russian rulers, he claimed, to ensure that all the lands that were once part of Kievan Rus would again be part of a unified Russian state. This Russian conception of Eastern European history, or a version of it, has been repeated in most textbooks of Russian history published in Western Europe and North Africa during the 20th century. Consequently, argues Magoski, in these works, The History of Ukraine, if considered at all, is treated as the history of one of Russia's provinces. Some Russian writers would even go as far as claiming that the idea of Russia without Ukraine is inconceivable. The two countries' histories and cultures are so intertwined as to be meaningless to be considered separately. An alternative historical viewpoint on Ukrainian history was provided by Polish writers in the 19th century who claimed that when the Poles incorporated most of the Ukrainian lands in 1569, they had a legal and historical right to the Kievan inheritance. While they recognised that there had been a high level of culture during the period of Kievan Rus, they did not consider it specifically Ukrainian. They claimed that the Ukrainian steppes had been depopulated after the 13th century Mongol invasion, and into this barren wilderness came settlers from Polish and Lithuanian-controlled lands. Bogoski writes that according to this theory, quote, Ukraine, together with neighbouring Belarus and Lithuania, was viewed simply as the eastern borderlands, which had been fortunate enough to be included within that bastion of Western and Catholic civilization, Poland. End quote. After World War II, initially under the influence of the Soviets, Polish historians considerably reassessed these views. Ukraine became no longer treated as an appendage to Poland, but rather as a country with a distinct historical process from earliest times to the present. Nevertheless, according to Mogoski, such new attitudes take time to permeate society, and still today, quote, it is not uncommon to find in Polish public opinion the conviction that whatever was positive in the Ukrainian past came not from indigenous forces, but solely from the country's association with the ostensibly civilising influence of Poland. End quote. A third Ukrainian historical viewpoint treats Ukraine not as a province of Russia or Poland, but rather as an independent country deriving from Kievan times. This viewpoint became popularised in the early 19th century, influenced by the Romantic movement of the time, and a growing sense of nationhood in regions all around Europe. 
As part of this movement, the distinctive genius of individual peoples was promoted as an alternative to the previous and often exclusive emphasis on dynasties and states as the driving forces of history. Ukrainian scholars played down the link between Kievan Rus and Moscow, instead placing emphasis on the continuity of peoples and cultures in the region of Ukraine. They even described the history of Ukraine earlier than the Kievan period. Lastly, a fourth historical viewpoint was developed during Soviet times. Beginning in the 1930s, Stalin was keen to promote ideas of Russian nationalism, which sought to justify the bringing together of separate nations, including Ukraine and Belarus, into one Soviet state, led from Moscow. But the communist leader went much further. Neil Asherson, in his book The Black Sea, The Birthplace of Civilization and Barbarism, wrote that any writings that described historical migration of people into Eastern Europe were banned, so that, for example, the region's Tatars were rediscovered as vulgar Aboriginals, and the Scandinavian Varingians, who had created the first state of Rus around Kiev, were re-identified as Slavs. Even the influence of Byzantium on early Russian culture was given a hard time. Anyone not towing the party line was exiled or imprisoned, and effectively silenced, and those who survived were expected to accept the new interpretation of East European history. Also under the Soviets, the old friendship between Russians and Ukrainians was emphasised, but with a rather sinister side. Russia was presented because it had always been the stronger partner as the elder brother, which meant that not only did Moscow have the right to rule over Ukraine, but that this natural order of things was beneficial to Ukraine. Soviet historians emphasised the long history of this relationship and claimed that it was only after the Mongol invasions in the mid-13th century that the south and western Ruslands were torn away from the rest of Old Rus and then began to develop their own ideas of separateness under the control of Lithuania and Poland. The more extreme sides of Stalin's ideas, such as the denial of historic migrations, are now universally dismissed, including in Russia, but still leave their legacy today. Since this is a history of the whole of Europe, instead of a particular nation, it does not need to follow any of these historical viewpoints. The idea is to try and narrate the main events of the region independent of whatever nation-states happen to exist there today, and wherever their borders lie at the time of writing. To keep an open mind, though, I do find it useful to consider the various historical viewpoints I described before, and any biases they may bring to understanding the history of the region. In the next part of this podcast, I would like to describe the geography of Eastern Europe, in particular around the Black Sea, the area whose early history is the most well-known. The Black Sea is a large body of water connected to the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean by the thin channel of the Bosporus and the Dardanelles. Until the end of the last Ice Age, some 18,000 to 20,000 years ago, it was not a sea, but rather a shallow lake, about two-thirds of its present size. As the glaciers retreated, the melting ice water swelled, and at some point the lake was joined with the Mediterranean. 
Studies of silt deposits on the bed of the Black Sea reveal that while lower levels contain remains of freshwater creatures, as one would expect in a lake, the higher layers are derived from marine life, deposited after the lake became a sea. Between these layers is virtually no transition zone, suggesting the formation of the sea was, in geological terms, virtually overnight. The resulting deluge was so great that waters rapidly rose up and flooded entire islands, ever since giving rise to stories of calamitous floods in days long past and of lost civilizations which disappeared under the water. The Black Sea was previously far lower than the Mediterranean, and so its level rose rapidly. According to Charles King in his book, The Black Sea, A History, as much as six inches a day, a speed which would have translated in the flat steplands on the northern shore into an advance landward of up to a mile each day, until the Black Sea and the Mediterranean reached equilibrium. King writes that the former shoreline, lying around 150 metres below the present sea level, has been found, and that in recent years marine scientists have reported tantalising possibilities of submerged human settlements sitting on the ancient shore. Today the Black Sea is 630 miles, or just over a thousand kilometres long, from east to west, and 330 miles, or 553 kilometres, from north to south, except in its middle, where the peninsula of Crimea reduces the north-south distance between the Crimean shore and Turkey to only 140 miles, or 225 kilometres. The sea is deep, reaching down to more than 2,200 metres in places, although there is a narrow shelf in its north-western corner, stretching from the Danube Delta in Romania to the Crimea, an important breeding ground for many of the Black Sea's fish species. To the east of the Crimean Peninsula, in the far northeastern corner of the Black Sea, is the Sea of Azov, connected to the Black Sea by a narrow channel called the Kersh Straits, through which there is a constant flow of water southwards. The Sea of Azov is the shallowest sea in the world, its depth varying only between 0.9 and 14 metres. The inflow of numerous rivers, most notably the River Don, brings with it sand and silt which form numerous bays and spits. Also, due to the river inflow, water in the Sea of Azov has low salinity and a high amount of biomass, resulting in an abundance of fish stocks which have helped feed the local population throughout the centuries. Rivers have also been central to the history of the Black Sea. In comparison to the far larger Mediterranean, which is fed by only three major rivers, the Rhone, Nile and Po, the Black Sea receives several. If the sea were a clock face, then at nine o'clock would be the Danube, the second longest river in Europe after the Volga. The Danube flows through ten countries before emptying into the Black Sea. Its most downstream section divides Bulgaria to the south and Romania to the north. Next, between about 10 and 12 o'clock, are three major rivers which run from northwest to southeast the River Prut, which forms the modern border of Romania and Moldova, the Dniestra, which runs close to the border of Moldova and Ukraine, and then the River Bug in Ukraine. 
In western Ukraine, the Baltic and Black Sea watersheds meet, where for centuries rivers have formed an important communication network linking the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, via rivers such as the Vistula, Bug and Dnistra. Of even greater historical significance has been the Dnieper River, which connects Belarusian and Russian cities in the far north with the Black Sea in the south, and from there beyond to the Straits of the Bosporus. The Dnieper features heavily in the history of the region, since on its banks is the city of Kiev, where the Rus dynasty first gained a stronghold. It is the fourth longest river in Europe, and reaches the Black Sea just to the west of the Crimean Peninsula. Continuing clockwise around the Black Sea, after the Don, which as mentioned earlier flows into the Sea of Azov, at about three o'clock of the Black Sea clock face is located the mouth of the river Kuban, which descends from the northern Caucasus area of Russia until it reaches the Sea of Azov, very close to the Kirsch Strait. The great influx of fresh water brings with it vast amounts of organic matter, which, as it decays, consumes oxygen. Because of this, and also due to the fact that there is little circulation between higher and lower levels of the Black Sea, the lower 90% of its waters are anoxic, and so virtually devoid of life, although in the upper 10% layer the fish flourish. What is unfortunate for life may, however, provide the perfect environment for marine archaeological research. With no oxygen, the deeper waters are free of any animals that would destroy submerged shipwrecks. As a consequence, suggests Charles King, there may be up to 50,000 separate wrecks at the bottom of the sea awaiting discovery, potentially every ship that ever sailed and perished on the Black Sea. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Since at least the 6th century BC, the ancient Greeks made a home along the coast of the Black Sea. At first they travelled to the southern coast, today Turkey, in the search for metals. Soon after they discovered the northern coast, where they discovered an abundance of fish and of timber for shipbuilding, and also the benefits of the wide rivers which reached north into the Eurasian steppe. In sailing to the Black Sea, ancient Greeks were moving into a world which was literally the frontier of human understanding. Their known world extended from the Straits of Gibraltar to the eastern end of the Black Sea. The eastern frontier region around modern-day Ukraine, according to Sergei Plochy in his book The Gates of Europe, A History of Ukraine, was, quote, where Greek civilization met its barbaric alter ego, the first frontier of a political and cultural sphere that would come to be known as the Western world. That is where the West began to define itself.
End quote. Thus it was the river Don which was considered until the 19th century the border where civilised Europe ended and barbarian Asia began. The region was described by the Greeks with the same fantastic qualities that defined all the outer limits of their world and became the location of many famous tales. For example, the eastern shore of the Black Sea was the destination of the voyage of Jason and the Argonauts and the Amazons, a race of mythical warrior women, are believed to have lived along the Black Sea. And so although several ancient authors offer detailed lists of the tribes around the Black Sea coast, how accurate they were can probably never be known for sure. According to Charles King, at the time the Greeks arrived, the area was probably already populated by a mixture of settled communities and nomadic confederations but today we have only broad, mainly regional, labels to distinguish them. On the western side of the Black Sea, around modern Bulgaria, were the Thracians, known in late antiquity for their fighting skills. On the eastern side, meanwhile, in the Caucasus Mountains, were a mixture of warlike groups, including a people called the Colchians, who were in charge of a powerful kingdom in the Bronze Age. And to the north were the Scythians, a broad term used to describe the semi-nomadic peoples of the so-called Pontic steppe region, which today makes up most of the Ukrainian land. This is the western part of vast steppe lands, which extend far into the east, as far as China. From the Sea of Azov, if one looks east, one sees only a flat landscape that seems to stretch so far into the distance that there is no horizon. Throughout history, these steppes were home to a very different type of people than those of the Mediterranean world. Semi-nomadic tribes who lived by rearing cattle and growing cereals, and who were expert horse riders. The Scythians, most probably of Iranian origin, were described by the ancient Greek historian Herodotus. He writes in some detail about their customs and society, and also with a certain admiration, about how they resisted the attacks of the Persians. In the year 512 BC, 13 years before the Greco-Persian Wars, Darius the Great invaded Scythia. The Persians marched deep into Scythian territory, but the Scythians, with no great urban dwellings to defend, were able to disperse into the steppes, like, according to Herodotus, Scottish deer, and so wisely avoid engagement with the enemy. A humiliated Darius was eventually forced to give up and return home, having achieved nothing for all his efforts. The Scythians were one of a long line of peoples who migrated from Central Asia to the West, driving before them vast herds of horses, sheep and cattle. By the early 700s BC, they displaced another group of peoples called the Sumerians, who were thought to have given their name to the Crimean Peninsula. It is important to realise, however, that none of these groups were ever composed of a culturally or ethnographically unified people. Rather, they were made up of various nomadic tribes that were sometimes united under the leadership of one great tribe that gave its name to the entire group. It seems that the Scythian ruling elite virtually lived on horseback, roaming the steppes while hunting for food or engaging in war with other tribes. 
Instead of living in permanent settlements, many travelled about in huge caravans, a type of mobile city. There were also, however, a few fortified centres where permanent settlers engaged in agriculture, such as a place called Neapolis, near the modern city of Simferopol in Crimea. The grains cultivated at these places became particularly attractive to Greek traders, and so developed a strong trading relationship between the two peoples, which came to last several centuries. Furs, wax, honey and slaves were brought down from the northern forests to the markets in the Greek coastal cities. On the profits of this trade, both the Greek merchants and the Scythian princes grew very rich indeed, and the latter spent their wealth conspicuously. Many spectacular discoveries have been found by archaeologists in the ancient Scythian territories of today's Ukraine and southern Russia. Elaborate burial mounds called kurgans, which still punctuate the horizons of the steppes, and also highly intricate gold artefacts. Some of the gold work originally reflected nomadic themes of sacred animals and the hunt, but in time the style gave way to depictions of domestic life, such as milking sheep, tanning a hide, and even gods and heroes borrowed from the Greek pantheon indicating that at least some of the steppe nomads had begun to adopt the traits of their more settled Greek neighbours. Cultural influence worked on both directions, as the Greeks who settled in the region began to copy some of the practices of the locals, such as the building of dugout houses to protect themselves from the winter cold. And some Greeks integrated images of their barbarian neighbours into their coinage. As time went on, the clear cultural line between Greek and barbarian, imagined by the poets and playwrights of classical Athens, became increasingly fuzzy. Next week I will continue the early history of the Black Sea region. I hope you can join me then. So thanks for listening to A History of Europe, Key Battles. And until next week, goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.